You're listening to the Audio Nowcast, sponsored by API. Now from the Nowcast Network Studios, here's Mike. Hey, welcome to the Audio Nowcast. My name is Mike Rodriguez. And before we get going, let me introduce the guys. Over here on my right, we've got the one and only Bobby Osinski. Bobby! Hi, Mike. Hi, guys. Uh, next to him, we've got the one and only Brandon Birdside. Good to be back. Next to Brandon, we have Mr. Nick Peck. Hello, Mike. Hello, gentlemen. It's so good to see you. It's so glad. I'm so glad to be back. It's good to see you too, Nick. Absolutely. It's good to see you guys. Happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, probably by the time this goes up. <laughs> I hope you all had a good Thanksgiving. <laughs> and finally, Skyping in with us from New York City is the one. New York there. City. Iron Man of the Audio Nowcast, Mr. I can't believe you're awake this late out there, Rob Arbiter. Hello, everyone. Yes, it is kind of late here, but you know I stay up for the podcast. I know, but usually when you stay up for the podcast, you're like, you're like death warmed over, but you're like all smiling and everything. Uh, this is just, it's a good look, Rob. That's all I'm saying. It must, it must be the lighting because I'm exhausted, but <laughs> I appreciate the compliment. <laughs> and, I'm happy to be here. And joining us today, we are uh, honored to have as our guest a really good friend of mine and a really good uh, sound designer and engineer, Mr. Sean Duffy. Hi there. Thank you for having me. <laughs> that was pretty good, Sean. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't swear at all. <laughs> and also, I want to uh, also also introduce um, our first guest that we're going to talk to, Mr. Delbert Hunt. Delbert. Hi, everybody. It's very, very strange being on this side of the, uh, of the door. All right. Now, Delbert, uh, he helps us out with the podcast. He edits some of the podcasts, and he also engineers, and he's engineering tonight, except for right now. So hopefully we're <laughs> this is all going down to tape. It's, it's rolling all off the rails now. But listen, I wanted to bring – we're going to start with Delbert, too, not just because I want him to go back and monitor this thing to make sure <laughs> it gets recorded. But last time on the last podcast um, – we talked a little bit. I told you guys that uh, Delbert um, landed a really great gig, and that was a VO for a uh, national commercial. And I wanted him, now that the commercials are uh, Aaron, to um, to tell us a little bit about it, a little bit about the experience. And uh, it's pretty cool. So, Delbert, why don't you – do you want me to tell him? Uh, you know what I, I mean? To, you know what? You, you, you seem very Delbert, excited about the, it. I want you, you know. <laughs> well, Delbert um, – Landed a doing the voiceover for a Chrysler commercial, National Chrysler. Now, if you know anything about the voiceover game, that's a really big deal. Once you get into, you leave the the local market and you go into national markets, it's a big deal. It's hard to break into, and uh, that was Delbert's first gig. That's the equivalent of getting a you know getting a Grammy right, right out of the box. I mean, that was a really <laughs> big deal, and uh, and Delbert's. Um, <clears throat> Had to do the whole process from. Why don't you tell them a little bit about the process? Yeah. Well, now I have representation. Now I have. I will soon have a SAG card, and I'm just trying not to get, you know, sued or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to do everything right. Well, and uh, tell a little about the process. You started off doing the scratch reads, right? Yeah, we. I did some scratch reads for the whole campaign, and. The producers involved told me, "Yeah, actually, we kind of like your voice. We're gonna try and get you to finish on one of these." And you know, of course, I'm like, 
okay, <laughs> fine, whatever you guys got to say. But as time went on and versions kept coming down and my voice stayed on one of them and it was still on there and still on there and then, uh, you know, before you know it. Well, wait a second. So how did, how did you get to the scratch read to begin with? Scratch read to begin with because I'm the post-production assistant where I work. And uh, they just pulled me in because they they like my voice. I think that was it. It was just yeah. Okay, so somebody identified your voice. And yes. Said, oh, hey. Yes. Yeah, we had actually we had talked. Uh, me and Delvin had talked about voiceover, and he had mentioned something about wanting to do voiceover. And so he had read a couple little scratch things and stuff and and the producers were looking for a voiceover person and and delbert um we have a couple actually we got a couple guys at work right now who have really good voices and they're 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 doing some pretty great things and uh and delbert was one of them and the way it works is on uh, on a branding spot you do a scratch video because that's what the editor is going to use to cut it in so you do a scratch voiceover and you want to at least get your foot in the door on a scratch VO because that'll kind of help you. You may not finish, but at least you'll get into a real spot. You'll see how your voice sets in. And then as they start doing approvals and they do approvals with the client, they do approvals back and forth. The client might have their own guy or you know they might have um, a, you know their own voice casting agencies that they work with. Um, is if you stay alive with versions, because you realize a commercial starts at version one, you may finish version twenty-three. I mean, it goes through a lot of different versions, um, and if you can keep your voice on there, um, the good thing is, is the more versions they do, the more your voice is on the versions. You've got a really great chance of landing that commercial because. The clients heard you the whole time, you know, yeah. and they get used to it. And and Delbert has a really good voice, and he survived on this one commercial all the way to the end. And they chose his voice over uh, the other talents, and it was it was it's a pretty big deal, you know. Delbert, have you done any voice acting before this? Before this, no, no. not at all, not at all, none. Wow, <laughs> are you going to now? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Are you, char- are you charging Mike to be here right now? <laughs> I mean, we were going to talk about it after. <laughs> Delbert, give me a, you're listening to the Audio Nowcast. You're listening to the Audio Nowcast. Nice. <laughs> Come on. Us, you know, it's can not. You, can you ABC it, though? <laughs> <laughs> give, us, give us three different types. That's right. right. Can you make it a little more friendly? Can you're you listening. A, can you put a smile on your voice? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, um, but yeah, I just I thought that was great, and Delbert um, had to go through the whole process of of getting into SAG and had to get had an agent and uh, all all the fun stuff. Are you having a good time? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's not bad. <laughs> and since then, he's he's landed a couple of other network spots, so wow. he's uh, he's on his way. He's rolling, but uh, you know, it just goes to show you you. Uh, you work with the audio now, Cass, and right? That's yeah, why. Right, Great that's things. what it was. I credit all of this to you, Mike. This is all you. <laughs> okay, so that's all I wanted you to say. Now you can. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm getting out of here. <laughs> no, but it's it's really great. Delbert, um, I will say that, you know, when he was doing his reads and stuff, he was always always available. He always did, you know, whatever they needed. It was just Johnny on the spot, just getting stuff done. And really, it's just like anything else. You know, the more you put into it, you you know, you gotta have a baseline talent, which is, which is in his case, is a really good, you know, set of pipes there. But um, 
you also have to put the work in and you got to do the reads and you got to be able to keep it um, really up and positive. And, and once the producers like you and like what you do, you know, you're in there. So it was really good. And, you know, people were fighting for him to get the finish and it worked out. So it was, it was pretty exciting. Wouldn't you say? I would. Very much so, yes. <laughs> how that was is exactly it? how I would put it. How was it the first time you heard your voice on the commercial on TV? Very, very strange. Was it really? Very odd. It was especially because I don't pay attention to the commercial, generally. So I was just absentmindedly, I think I was in my kitchen. I don't, you know, I heard it and ran back over to the TV. <laughs> Took the phone out, filmed my TV, which does not feel right. But <laughs> It's the kind of thing you got to do. Yeah. <laughs> Did your, uh, have your parents, have they heard it? Have, oh, yeah. Where, yeah, where, yeah. What did they do the first time they heard it? Were they... <laughs> They both called me separately at the same time, <laughs> of course. And my dad is not a super emotional guy, but I could hear it. And it's so awesome. It's so good. <laughs> that, good. that was fantastic. Where well, are they at? Uh, Chicago. Oh, that is yep. so good. Well, you know, it's it's that's just awesome, and uh, I look forward to working with you on some more spots. Hey, me too. You know, just make sure you. Save it as a version of my template. Don't save over my template. Just one mistake, one time. Like, <laughs> never again. <laughs> it's all good. All right. Well, hey, thank you, Delbert, and thank you for all your help here. But uh, yeah, good job. Buddy. Good job, London. <laughs> thank you. Hey guys. Well, we're gonna switch gears right now. And um, uh, before we start, I I, I just want to talk about this just a little bit because it really affected me. Um, and that has to do with the uh, the tragedy that happened over in Paris during the uh, Eagles of Death Metal, um, their concert. And I finished, you know, we were a little behind on some of our podcasts, and I was going to post 166 actually on Friday. And, um, and I couldn't post it because when I found out, A, about the tragedy, I just didn't feel right. But really, um, you know, the... The member of the crew that died on that horrific day was um, was a gentleman by the name of Nick Alexander, and he was the merchandising guy for the band. And show one sixty six, you know, we talked about Colin going out on his first tour, and he was the merch guy. He was a merch guy, and it just it really affected me because. You know, here these guys, the band and the merch guy, you know, you don't realize sometimes how vulnerable you are in situations. You know, we all kind of, you know, I've been on tour and I've, I've been out there and you kind of, it's just one giant party, you're having a good time and something like this, you know, happens and it's really just a sobering thought. Um, and these guys are hard workers. I mean, you don't, you're not on the road if you're not good. It's just, you don't find too many guys on the road that aren't good at their job. So, you know, I don't know Nick, but I'm sure he was great at what he did because that's why he's on the road. You know, there's there's not too many opportunities to be out there and to, and to be faking it. And I just, man, my heart just went out for him and his family and just just all the guys that are out there. Um, if you're a front of house guy or if you're a lighting guy, sometimes, man, you're right in the middle of that, of, of – you're really vulnerable, you know. Right now, Dennis Moody, who's a friend of the podcast, who you know, he's kind of our live sound guy. He's on the road out in Europe and stuff, and that's 
that's a snake pit, you know, being out there so exposed, especially if you're in a hostile environment with sometimes crowds and things like that. And I don't know. I, I was just it was just amazing and, and it just was really, really sad. Really sad. And I just wanted to, you know, I just had to talk about it and just say a few things because I just think when you go to a show and you see these guys that are working behind the scenes, you know, they're 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 doing a great job and it's not easy and they all have lives and they all have, you know, family and things like that. I mean, I've been in some hairy situations on the road and nothing compared to what, what this guy had to deal with. And if you read any of the accounts of actually some of the stuff and, and just how horrific it was, it's just, uh, I couldn't sleep that night. I mean, anyhow, I don't know if anybody has to add anything to that or uh, if we're going to move on, but I'm, you know, it's, I don't know. I just, I would say a moment of silence, but but you know it's it's been done. But really, just I just wanted to release that burden to you guys because it really affected me. And it, it's you know you're just trying to do your job, right? <laughs> you're just trying to do something as simple as making people happy. And for them to to have that happen is just I, I still can't process it. I have a hard time processing it. Or you're just going out to dinner with your friends at the restaurant yeah. that night, or you're going to a concert, or you're going to a soccer match, yeah. and people who have a political agenda come in and take your life away and destroy the lives of your families. I spent Friday, you know, started out as a normal day at Disney for me, and then uh, I saw the, the news, and that was it. I just sat there glued to CNN.com and was so depressed about you know, sort of the state of human beings on this planet that could, you know, visit those kinds of atrocities on strangers. It it, it blew my mind. I don't have anything. I don't have anything up or happy to add to no, this. No, you you really can't. It's just surviving. And if anything, man, I I just think if you're working with a group of people, if wherever you are, you know, realize that. I mean, this just could easily happen with, you know, you're working in a skyscraper, but in some you know, from some of the tragedies that have happened. And I don't know, you just got to appreciate life. You just got to appreciate what you have. You got to appreciate the people around you. You got to pre- appreciate the people you work with because you just never know when it's just going to be taken away. Yeah. Wow. How do, how do we segue out of that? <laughs> That's like, okay, Sean, <laughs> not to put you on a spot. <laughs> I'm just uh. kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, Anyway, yeah, so uh, I guess all that to say, go shake the hand of the merch guy and the, the crew next time you go to a concert, man, and just let them know they're doing a good job. And buy his $35 T-shirt. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, it's, uh, it's not his $35 T-shirt. Right, right, right. He's not going to get that $35. <laughs> um, I, know, I know how I want to segue out of this because um, I want to talk to Bobby. And, and Bobby, I, I always go back to you because I'm – once again, we're going to talk a little bit about streaming, and I feel like this is such an important thing. We're not going to spend a lot of time, but I was actually listening to our podcast when we talked about streaming the last time, and and I wanted to bring up a point, and you let me know. It when we were talking about streaming last time, and you said you know a million views isn't anything. Um, you didn't actually use that word, but you're a little more yes. stronger than that. Um, and I started thinking about our conversation when I was listening on that. And, and, you know, it seems to me we're in a time where bands can make 
a lot of money because you have the opportunity to get huge like you've never been able to be because of the internet. I mean, you can go multinational almost overnight if you're in the right playlist, if you're in the right. I mean, it's it's it really happens, but it's yeah. it's possible, right? Possible. And when you were talking about making money and you're talking about, you know, a tons of views and making a lot of money, my, my question is, is what if you have a limited fan base that's in the thousands? Let's say you have a fan base that's only 2,000. Would you say it's still a smart thing to stream your music, all of your music? Or I'm not saying – Absolutely. You t- no, no. But what, why can't you make some of your music exclusive for sale? Like – Look, look, the whole idea is... Because you're only going to sell 2,000 albums. Wait, wait, wait. The whole idea is there's a certain point, up until a certain point of your career, you want exposure, you want more people, you you want more people to hear what you're doing. You can't do it if you limit them, and you limit them by... By saying you have to pay me in order to hear this, so again, the best way you can do it is back in the days of piracy. I would say, hey, pirate it as much as you want. If there's people that want to pirate it, it's all the better. Put it everywhere on every torrent. It doesn't matter. The more people that hear it, the better off I am as an artist. And that still applies. Now there comes a point in time where you have to say, okay, now we can convert this because our audience is large enough that now we can convert it into something paying. But that doesn't. But what if it never gets? What, what if your audience never gets? Uh, what if you? What if you're an then artist? You're not going to make any. You're still going to make money from streaming. You're not going to make a huge amount. But you're not going to make a huge amount from anything at that point because you need people. No matter what, you need people that want to hear what you say. You have to go to a club and you have to have a line around the block. And if you don't. Forget it. See, but that's that's my point. Are we now going to be wiping out uh, some niche genres that will only sell, you know, two thousand albums? Will only have will never have a line around the block. Will only have a theater that's three quarters full. Where in back in the day, you could make money like that. And if you sold, you know, ten thousand, you know, CDs that were self produced, that's that's not bad. That's not bad change. Well, people are still buying CDs. There is uh, 241, uh, wait, I think it was 241 million sold in the United States last year. That's an awful lot. It was a billion dollar business. So th- there's people still buying. And that's the stuff that we can count. There's probably at least another 50% that we don't count that's kind of off the books that SoundScan doesn't look at. So there's the the the, the uh, indie CDs that people are selling at their own gigs, that kind of thing. Yeah, sure, that's never counted uh, off their own websites. That's not counted. So there's actually a lot of money being made on those things. If you package it right and you package it as a collectible, that you bundle it with other things. Sure, you can still make money, but you have to be smart about it. You can't just put something out and, and expect it to sell. I, Never worked, and it doesn't work now. And Bobby, what do you say? Music or the you know the downloads or the CDs themselves are almost like a loss leader, where you really make your money in the concert sales and the merch and whatever. Well, to begin in the beginning, yes, your music is your marketing. Just remember that your music is your marketing. So the more people that hear it, it's like the more people being exposed to a commercial. Same thing. And and the whole idea is to find your niche. There's going to be a bunch of people somewhere that's going to love you. You have to find them. Once you find them, there's the whole uh, thousand um, thousand true fan idea where it, you can actually make money. You can 
earn a living if you have a thousand true fans. The number goes up and down depending who you talk to. But the idea is if you have a fan base that doesn't attrit too much, then you know you can always make money as long as you play it right. All right. <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, people do it all the time, and people make money from streaming. Um, but again, you have to. You have to do it right. You have to take care of business. You can't just throw music out there and expect someone to hear it. I mean, the, the I mean, odds 10, are so far against you if you can, if you do. But ten thousand fans used to be a big deal. I mean, that used to be a pretty decent deal. That means you could go and and sell still this. Is. Still is all right. So ten thousand fans. But if they, if you, but look the at worldwide the pennies, don't forget. But if you look at the pennies you get from the streaming as opposed to the hard cash you get from the sales, I'm just – look, there's no doubt right now we're in that economy of the streaming. But I'm just trying to think what is going to cost us. That's why I've had such a hard time is – I don't care about the big acts because we're going to get the super yeah. acts that make a ton of money. I'm more concerned about the the acts that don't make a ton of money, that, that don't tour, but that you used to be able to, to find um, the CDs. The jazz, yeah, look, you know, the specialized jazz. Look, the- it's the same thing as, as the rest of the economy. We're losing the middle class in music, and we've lost the middle class everywhere else, and we're losing it in music, too. So that, and that was where you made your living. You made a pretty good living, but you know, again, there's less and less of that. The venues are dying out. There's a whole. I mean, we can talk just about that. Everywhere in the world, venues are dying, and they're dying for a number of reasons. First, is the real estate costs are too high. The second is if a venue happens to get popular, that's actually a death knell in a way because what ends up happening is you have a neighborhood that basically says oh there's too much noise mm-hmm. there's 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 drunkenness there's whatever right. and they ten- and they close it down so there's all these things that are against live venues so we're getting less of them so and that's happening everywhere so you know that's a bigger problem than anything yeah, I just, you know, I'm trying to wrap my head. I've been doing a little bit of research on just some of this stuff. And, you know, I have some friends that are jazz musicians. I have a really good friend who's a jazz drummer. And I'm like, where are these guys going to make their money? Where did they make their money before? I mean, they never made a lot. You don't go well, to jazz to make money. No, but they you, work at home you know depot what? during the day. I, and then you, they go and they play their jazz gig at night. Yeah, with jazz gigs. Jazz guys tend to gig a lot. They, they tend to... This the U.S. It's not big, but in Europe and in Japan, you yeah. can still tour uh, a jazz band. You can still tour. Yeah. I mean, they're they're gone all the time. Actually, um, uh, you know, Forrest plays some of, some of those gigs. You know, and mm-hmm. and you know, you have the whole Blue Note thing, and and there's just there's just a lot of opportunities over there. You got the uh, what is it, the North Sea Jazz Festival, mm-hmm. all those bigger events, um, the. The jazz festival in in Cologne, Germany. That's another big one. We we don't have jazz festivals in the U.S. other than the Playboy Jazz Festival. You don't see a lot of them. Monterey like, Jazz Festival. Yeah, yeah Monterey, but New, not, New Orleans. I mean, the ones that have been around. But even those, there's there's not a lot of jazz. Jazz Fest has a lot of has a lot of a ton of different types of music. Well, yeah. I guess they all kind of do though. So I guess well, they kind of had to to yeah keep the crowd coming. Um, what would you guys say in now in late 2015, uh, 2016, going in 2016, is an effective strategy to find a niche, you know, for your type of music and to actually market to that niche? Oh, it's easy. Well, I, it's not easy, but it's it's easier than than people think. Uh, the first thing is find artists that you're similar to, and there's your audience. 
than market to them. But and it's it works two different ways. The first way is I think we I or we sound like that. And the second one is probably more effective is you have a few fans that say you sound like that. And sometimes you go, oh, I don't get that at all, but they're more on it than you are. Yeah. So then you find where that crowd is and you market to them. Any tools that the listeners could use to? Well, that? any web based tools that help? Yeah, some? there's plenty, but the easiest way is tastemakers, which means bloggers that deal in that particular genre. Uh, that's the easiest way to turn people on. Uh, playlists get on playlists that that are close to that are are in that that neighborhood. Well, those are two right off the top of my head. Hey Rob, um, how are the misses doing? I mean, I, I you know we talked a couple weeks ago, and you still said it was a little too early, but you're finding momentum on on the streaming front or any of those uh, social fronts. Um, honestly, I've been wrapped up on other things with them, and I haven't been looking. I mean, we know it's not huge. Um, we know we're getting traction on the charts. I mean, uh, as of when we're recording this podcast, we found out today, actually, we're number 12 on the AC charts oh, this week. Good. That's good. Yeah. You know, in the old days, that would have meant pretty significant income. And in a few months, we'll know how much it actually means for today. But uh, no, I haven't. We've been working very heavily on some stuff we have coming up for Christmas, so I've been not in business mode. I've been more in the studio and recording and dealing with that side of things. All right. Well, keep us posted when you go back into business mode. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, once we get past these next few weeks, we will start looking back at the numbers because we had one single already sort of go through its full life cycle long enough ago that we should start to see all those numbers. Um, they may even already be in. I just haven't been focusing on it. Cool. Well, that's because you wear a ton of different hats there, Mr. Rob Arbiter. <laughs> that is quite true. Well, and they all fit at the same time. They all fit at the same time. And honestly, I mean, if I thought, you know, we're not under any illusion that for a new band like us that the streaming income is going to be substantial. I mean, of course, I'm curious to see what it is and we'll appreciate whatever it is. But, uh, you know, it's why we're working so hard on touring and licensing and product endorsements and all the other ancillary ways to make income that are actually primary ways well you know what this is i just gonna keep an eye on what you're doing because uh it's it's a really good test because you're getting some success on a national level and uh have you gone really global yet or do you are you still mainly national do you think or are you are you taking off globally um well the video the enough video uh that went viral got translated into a bunch of different languages and definitely went global somewhat. Uh, <laughs> the push on radio has been uh, just national. Gotcha. Although, though we did have an Australian station in Sydney pick up enough, and it actually did really well on the radio in Sydney, and we have no <laughs> idea how it even happened. They just found it in the wild and decided they loved it. Wow. Enough was a reasonable hit in Sydney on one radio station. <laughs> so there could be an uh, Australian tour. You should future. ask Bobby if he's heard it down there. That's quite possible. I will. That's that's actually a good idea. Yeah. That is a good idea. Well, hey, listen, uh, I, we're not going to harp on this much more because we've got a ton of stuff to get to. But uh, I, I will just we'll keep yeah. the dialogue going. Yeah. I'm working on a project. That's why I'm so interested. Yeah. And there's been a lot of different conversations about how to make money. And, I, you know, the one thing I can tell you is, if you don't have your 
your music on available on streaming, it really does work against you. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, recently, I had someone contact me and say, well, I know you had a number two with Adrian Marina Group Cutters, but I can't find the music anywhere. And he basically said it was bullshit. What I was telling was bullshit because I couldn't find it. And the whole thing was she went through that same thing. I only want to sell CDs. I don't want to have it. And it really hurt her. And it still is hurting her by not having it available. And to some degree, it becomes a validation. If I can find your music where I think it should be, then it's for real. If I can't find it, might as well not even be there. That, I believe. If you can't find it on YouTube, it doesn't exist, right? I mean, I'm always shocked when I can't. There's a, there's a song that was in a movie 15 years ago, and I love that song. And every, every couple of months, it gets in my head like, I should see if that song's available. And it's not on iTunes, and it's not on Amazon. And I'm always like, what is this? Like, how, how can something have existed that I was like, well, that's pretty good. I should get that. And it doesn't exist. Okay. Like, I can't find it. It could have existed, and the record label or the person that owned the rights could have, have it take, had it taken down because that happens all the time. But why? Why would you do that if well, if it's a 15-year-old song and I'm willing to pay a dollar for it, then why would you not want me to why would they not want to take my dollar? That's a good reason, a good question, but they do it often, <laughs> often. I mean, no, if if I put something on my blog and I usually pull it off of YouTube and embed it, you can guarantee that a record label is going to look at it that day, and it may be gone the following day if if they don't like it. And it happens all the time, especially to things like isolated tracks, you know, which everybody loves. Right. And if I put an isolated track up of uh, a Beatles thing, for instance, that's gone in a minute. The Stones, <laughs> it's gone in a minute. Uh, uh, Zeppelin, it's gone in a minute. You know, any uh, Hendrix, gone. I had uh, some wonderful isolated tracks from all along the Watchtower. Uh. Uh, isolated guitar track, for instance. Uh, isolated drums. The whole, you know, just great stuff. Gone in That's a second. Horrible. Yeah. Wow. Can I get Let's a hold of those after the show, drums? Bobby? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't know it. I just, felt, I just embedded it from. It was on YouTube. <laughs> wow. Well, I'll tell you what. Hey, on that note, uh, we're going to take a break so that we can uh, pick Bobby's brain off the air. <laughs> uh, but. Yeah, we'll you know, we'll, we're going to keep this dialogue yeah. going. We may not spend all this time, but it's I think it's really important because it's we're all trying to figure this all out, especially with YouTube and the red service. And we talked a little bit about that last well, time. Well, there's more. There's YouTube has now released YouTube Music, right. which is the app, which is the audio only app. Plus, the big blockbuster that happened yesterday was. Um, Pandora buying the assets, some of the assets yeah. of RDO, yeah. and uh, that's a big deal because that'll mean that all of a sudden they have an on-demand streaming service that they can go global because they're not global. They're only in the U.S. And Beats is gone. Beats. Apple sh- well, everybody that. knew that was going to happen. Title is on the, the edge. but everybody, Zune is gone. You Zune know? is gone. It's, it's, I didn't even know they were alive. Yeah, so, I didn't yeah. either. So I'll be honest. That yeah. It's crazy, though. I mean, it's... Talk about being on a rubber canoe. I mean, it is changing. You, we're just—it's all over the place, you know. So it's yeah. going to be interesting to see 
see what happens. But mainly, where am I going to get my kitten videos for free? You can still get them for free. Yeah, there's kitten videos <laughs> all over the place for free. No, no, the only thing is you have to sit through commercials. That's <laughs> okay. all. Okay, I feel bad. All right, well, hey, we're going to take a break, and uh, we'll see you on the other side. You're listening to the Audio Nowcast, sponsored by API and Westwave Audio. Have a question for the panel? Would you like to be a guest on the Audio Nowcast and live in the L.A. area? Email us at audio at nowcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back to the Audio Nowcast. And uh, before the break, we were getting educated yet again by Mr. Bobby Osinski. Bobby, it's like having like the world's most awesome music guru here each and every single time. He has <laughs> such a big brain. Yes. No, no. <laughs> you know what it is? It's 4,000 blog posts. <laughs> <laughs> or I could go to your blog. <laughs> I'm a little lazy. I'd just rather talk to the man himself. <laughs> 4,000 blog posts and X number of books, 23 books and <sighs> revisions and all. So. Wow. Do you ever just look at that and just go, that's a lot of words? No. <laughs> <laughs> but I will when I go home. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Uh, well, hey, listen, we are uh, honored to have uh, Mr. Sean Duffy with us. And uh, I wanted to bring Sean on. Actually, I wanted to bring Sean on. I've been ducking this for six, seven, eight years. Uh, you know what? We're almost <laughs> 10 years, bro. You, you only started asking me after the first year. Oh, which so that's nine years. Okay. <laughs> I've known Sean for uh, for almost ten years, and uh, Sean has a really great story. I'm going to let him talk a little bit about it. But um, he he started off as a PA, and he worked his way up, and uh, all the way to being a uh, featured interview on Ain't It Cold News as a sound designer. <laughs> and Sean's done a lot of really cool things, and he's. Starting his career, um, has his own studio, and uh, tell us a little bit about your journey, Sean. You started off at Berkeley School of Music. I did. I went to Berkeley. Uh, I studied film composing, and I was pretty bad at it, I thought. I got good grades, but I thought I was pretty bad at it. So I thought, oh, I should probably learn Pro Tools. So I took most of the Pro Tools classes that were offered in the, the, uh, the uh, department. And uh, when I graduated, I didn't really know what to do with that, so I kind of kicked around for a little while. And a buddy of mine, uh, Matt Burling, he got me a job at what was then Creative Domain. Uh, They were using a Fairlight, and they wanted to switch to Pro Tools, and so they were looking for someone who knew Pro Tools a little bit to kind of help the the mixer at the time make the transition. Uh, And pretty much... As soon as his Pro Tools went in, they were like, hey, do you want us to set up a little room for you? Which turned out to be a VO booth yeah. about the size of maybe half this table that Sean we're sitting worked, at. Sean worked in my, I'm now in the room that he's talking about. He worked in the VO booth for that room. I don't know how you did it, man. That That's is a small room. That is a small <laughs> room. It was weird. It was really weird. And whenever they wanted to record VO, I had to leave. <laughs> <laughs> so I spent a lot of time sitting in the hallway looking out the windows. Uh, 
Did, were you like, did you face the window or did you face the wall? No, I, faced, that... I faced the wall because it would have been super creepy to be facing the window and <laughs> looking, looking at, Steve. at Steve just <laughs> in there mixing like, hey, how's it going, Steve? <laughs> uh, so, they, yeah, I did that for a while until uh, I guess they realized that that wasn't really going to work. So then they put me into a room that was slightly bigger than the VO booth but didn't have air conditioning like the VO booth. Uh, and then I did that for a while. And then they moved me into a room next to the ladies' room so that every time someone flushes a toilet in the <laughs> ladies' room, you could hear the water run through the pipes. <laughs> that was pretty fun. <laughs> it's so true. Uh, yeah, when I started out in the VO booth, all I did was uh, edit audio commentaries because that's really all you can do in a VO booth. It's not like I was going to... Okay, Sean has edited more commentaries than more than anybody I know. I mean, I, I would challenge anyone to write into the audio nowcast. How many? How many audio commentaries have you? I stopped counting after a hundred, and that was after the first year and a half. And that was about. And that was nine years ago. Yeah, that was. It's, it's got to be. Hundreds. It's got to be four hundred, depending on how you want to count them. I mean, just to tell you, he's done some pretty big commentaries, like The Hobbit. Did uh, all those movies? I mean, he's worked on some really. Big bonus features and some big, um, big things. Yeah, but you, they can't really have somebody on staff just to do audio commentaries. So eventually, it was like, well, you should probably start mixing. Or else, yeah, you know um, what? I got I got <laughs> for the longest time. It's like Sean, you got to You got to start mixing, and you resisted. I did not want to mix. He did not want to mix. He's like, no, I'm not going to mix. I'm Why? a very, I'm a very, I'm sort of an old school kind of guy where I feel like if you want to do something. You study that something, then you kind of apprentice with somebody who does that something. You look over their shoulder, like you you work your way up. But at, it was Trailer Park at the time. They were just kind of like, hey, go at it. And, and it doesn't work anywhere anymore. Yeah, so it was like, just do it. And I don't know if it works. Yay. Yeah, so. And, you know, you, you were. You I mean, I had, I had Mike. I don't want to make it sound like. They were like, they put me in a room and were like, don't talk to anyone and no one can tell you how to do this. Just figure it out. Look, he, he had, he would prep, when I first got there, he would prep all my mixes. So he did, he did all the prep. And he did, he's a, he did a fantastic job of prepping. I mean, one thing Sean is, is. Okay, I have a question for you. How did, how did you prep? What did you prep? Explain the process. Okay, so an editor will cut their project in Avid, Final Cut. Now they do Adobe, Premiere. And I think you can do it in DaVinci now, too, I heard, but it's yeah. not. Anyway, uh, they output what's called an OMFI, which stands for Open Media File Interchange, yeah. which contains all the audio tracks. And depending on how good the assistant editor is, uh, the tracks will either be separated into different elements, like voiceover, dialogue, music, sound effects, with those then being split into like uh, stereo sound effects, mono sound effects, uh, like that. So what I would do is I would open the OMFs and put them into Mike's template for him. And then, because I had a lot of time, I would just go ahead and start mixing them. And then when they needed to go to him, I would pass them over and he would do his final pass. You know what, though? I Don't sell yourself short, though. One thing that he would do that would save an enormous amount of time is he would do a really good dialogue edit. Mm. Sean is a great dialogue editor, and that is really important because yeah. he's really meticulous on the small details, and that you know, which it, which are what? 
What that's, does that mean? That's all I did for six months Things, in that VO okay. booth. So every time an edit, you know, every time there's an edit, you have a potential for a click or a pop or mm-hmm. you know. And so a, a good assist will go in there and just will you know crossfade or take out or zero zero out the edit, whatever you need to do to get rid of that pop or the click. You got to okay. keep in mind too, video editors when they're working with audio, their tools are clumsy. And um, they're—I don't want to say their skills are clumsy because that suggests there are some that are very good at it. But for the most part, they're concerned with the video, and most of them will, you know, like here's the audio for this cut, and then it cuts to this cut, and they don't really think about how it goes from this to this. Or, or they stack six things on top of each right. other, yeah. duplicates. To yeah. make, I'm going to make it louder. Raising the volume, for gain. Yeah. yeah. So, or the music edits are horrible. Which I always, I have the thing was whether or not an editor can dance because whether or not they can yeah. feel, the, feel <laughs> right. the beat. And I'm like, that editor cannot dance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. <clears throat> yeah. So it, compared to like the audio commentaries when we started, right? Like right now, there's no. I, I'm guessing because no one would tell me. I'm guessing there's no money in audio commentaries because when an audio commentary comes in, it's like here, except for the Hobbit, here's an audio commentary. Uh, you know, take out the mouth clicks and whatever you can to make it appetizing mm-hmm. for an hour and a half. Uh, but back in the day when we started, we had some producers who they would write you a paper cut for yeah. the commentary, yeah. and it would be like here, here's all the things that he said, but here's what I'd like him to say. In like tighten these things up. He missed this, so we had him read it again. He mm. didn't know this lady's right. name, so he picked it up. And so I, I back in the day, there would be hundreds, if not thousands, of edits in a commentary. Yeah, I mean, you could spend. <laughs> we'll go back in the day. You could spend days on a commentary. Mm. I did um, probably the biggest commentary I did was Pearl Harbor. Um, you know that box set that came out. I did the the audio commentary on that, and um, and also did the audio commentary on um, Panic Room, um, and both those commentary edits were days. I mean, literally on Panic Room, we put together that whole commentary off of three different sessions at different times, but had to make them seem like they were all in the same session. And you've done that. I mean, I had the we I did the the audio commentary for Little Miss Sunshine. Uh, and the directors came in, and they recorded pickups, and they, they, it, I think we booted Mike out of his room because obviously I was still in one of the small non-air conditioned rooms. I think we booted Mike out of his room, and I sat with them for three, four days editing the commentary so that they were happy with it. You say booted, I say long lunches. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it depends a lot on the 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 filmmakers themselves. Like I, like Mike said, I I did a lot of stuff for The Hobbit trilogy and peter jackson's very into the idea of documenting the whole thing you did all the stuff let's be honest well, I, I, that's not true i did all the stuff for the third disc i did half the stuff for the second disc now three quarters of the stuff for the second hobbit and half the stuff for the first it it kind of progressed. I, I, I tell people everything. Okay, well, I, just I'm I'm a very hon- <laughs> I'm a very honest guy, and I want to give credit where credits due. Yeah. Uh, but so if the if the director's very serious about documenting the film like Peter Jackson is he wants he knows that he has serious fans who are interested and he wants to tell them all about it so we spend a lot of time on those but then sometimes you have um like first time directors where the studio is just not they don't have the same level of involvement in the extra materials so 
there won't it won't be you know three days and we're sitting with someone and everyone listens to it and there's a big approval process it'll be you know let's get this nice let's send it to the studio the studio will approve it and then we will burn it to a disc so sean i have a uh, i have a practical question to yes. ask you for our listeners um expand a little bit on mouth clicks and what they sure and what what is your approach to getting rid of them, do you edit? Do you use declickers? Do you use I you know, hate, I low hate, pass filters? What's your approach? I hate declickers. I hate the decracklers. But our a guy we work with, Yael, he used them on some of the Hobbit stuff. So I started using it because I had to match what he had done, and I I kind of came around to it for certain things. To to me, I would I would edit them all out. Like I when I started, I did um, I can't remember if it was three or four commentaries from a director named Vincent Sherman and they recorded them when he was in his mid to late nineties. And so it was, you could hear his dentures moving and you could hear his stomach gurgle and he, you know, the commentaries were amazing considering he had shot these movies, you know, 60 years ago, but he, you know, you have to go through and make it palatable for people. People don't, what were you using for a D clicker? Well, I would manually edit them out. Okay. Every yeah. single one. Yeah. That's, like I said, there would be thousands of edits. Now, let me interject in here. That's one of Sean's strengths, is he is, is the attention to detail. And because he's edited so many commentaries, he is a fantastic dialogue editor. And it's that, it's that detail that, um, you may miss as as a mixer. You may miss it because it just comes by. You're listening at, well, on a different level, and, and he will. Boom, it's not only that. It. It's uh, you know, I'm when I was in the VO booth, I was listening in headphones all the time. Uh, and if you're listening to this right now, and I get right up on the mic, and I my mouth is a little dry, and you know, you start to hear those things, and then imagine me 60 years from now with a set of dentures. And I'm hungry, and this is the second commentary I've done today, and I'm trying to remember what Betty Davis said to me 70 years ago. You know, I, it's it's up to me to make whoever when you're when I'm doing a commentary or anything really, it's up to me to make the listening experience as pleasant for the listener, but also I want to make it nice. I want to make it. I want to present whoever's being presented in the audio i want to present them in the best possible way do you have an approach then um is there a trick that you have is there some an approach when you're when you're doing that when you're dialogue editing is there like for mouth clicks yeah like what do you do different from everybody else i don't know that i do anything different from everybody else i don't i've never seen anybody else really do it i to me you can look at the waveform and do you listen the, or do you look at the wave? Both. Yeah. I used to be able to do them uh, when I was younger and show off ear. I used to be able to edit them in almost real time. So I would hit play and it would start playing. And I had already, I would start with maybe a minute where I would get the stuff out and then I would let it run. And while I'm listening to it, what I've already done. I'm looking at the wave, and you can see there's. It looks like a tick, mm-hmm. and so you just go in, and usually I would try to find a nice little, little tiny little snippet of like 15 frames to, well, this was back in the 30 frame days, like a second's worth of room tone, and I would just highlight that click and control. I think it's Control Apple V, whichever is the 
paste to this amount, and I would just paste in a little chunk of room tone, put a little fade and a fade, and as I'm doing them, it's playing back in my ears. And if I miss one, I just I stop it. It would be set to stop where I the transport would go to where I stop. I would stop it and fix the thing, set it to play, and go back to it. Do you get rid of ahs and ums? <sighs> Sometimes. Um, Sometimes. Seriously. It, it, that, de- that depends on the producer. It also depends on the talent. If you say it once or twice, it's okay. If you say it 15 times in a string of three, four sentences, um, I, um, yeah, and then I, uh, um, then I got to take those out because it, it's, no one wants to listen to that and it gets, you, you start to tune it out. Mm-hmm. It's like white, it's like the, word equivalent of white noise when someone starts saying um uh yeah like you just you all of a sudden it's like oh what's that over there i'm not paying attention to this anymore the problem with that is uh when you cut those out you make space and if you make that space you can either tighten the space and then you're making space somewhere else or you leave that space and it sounds like the person just zoned out so back in the day they used to record they would record a commentary, and then they would record a bunch of stuff afterwards. And that bunch of stuff afterwards was just loose, not the picture, and then they would slot that in if there was big holes. But nowadays, it's they, you know, they, have the, they have the talent for two hours. They will watch the movie once. They might pick a few things up, but for the most part, it's what you have is what you have. And in those cases, I try to, like, if it's excessive, yeah, you take it out. But if it's not, then... You, you you're just creating a bigger problem to me like if you talk to someone they will eventually say um they will yeah. stall they will lose their train of thought after a while commentaries you 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 do so many of them and you hear so many of them you almost there's like formulaic answers that people always say mm-hmm. you know it almost becomes the same thing i really enjoyed working with these people you know? well i'm going <laughs> to and you know, I, I did the I did a commentary one time that got killed by the studio. It was a very prominent writer doing a commentary with a friend, and as the commentary went on, they were both drinking. And by the end of the commentary, the one of the writers was bad mouthing a studio executive that that writer had had some sort of a relationship i'm trying to be as vague as possible so mike doesn't have to cut this uh and it was one of the best commentaries i've ever heard and it got killed because obviously no studio wants to put that out no talent wants to put that out because they you know you start drinking and you loosen your inhibitions and then you stop drinking and you're like "Ah, i might want to work with this person again i might want to work with this studio again so uh, I feel like commentaries, they're great, and I used to listen to them when I started, like when I first got DVDs, it was like, oh, this is the coolest thing, people will talk about the movies, and I can learn about it, but really, you're, you're learning, it's like the, almost the mirror image of reality TV, where everything is cut to make drama, right. commentaries and featurettes are cut to <laughs> hide drama a little bit. No one's ever going to say, "Ah, oh, I hated working with this actress. She sucked." Yeah, you don't no get a lot of ever on- say that. you don't get a lot of honesty in uh, in commentaries. It's, it, no, it's not that you don't no, get no, honesty. No, no. I mean, what I'm you saying know. is, you, you get a lot of okay. You're right. You get a lot of filtered honesty yeah. in the in and it's. 
I've done comp- commentaries, and then you get the notes back, and Sean's been in the same position, and they make you cut out some of the best parts of that commentary. They can't talk about money. No one can talk about money. You cannot talk about money. In a commentary, if you talk about money, it's out. I've never let. I've never had something sneak by where it was like, "Yeah, this shot cost ten grand." Nope, that's out. As soon as they say it, I know it's out. There's you cannot say, "Oh yeah, we. Oh man, yeah, we probably shouldn't have let this stunt guy do that." That's gone. <laughs> that's <laughs> too me- bad. That's all the best stuff. Too. Well, yeah, and that's that's one of the few really great things about what we do is we get to see that kind of stuff. <laughs> anyway. Sean, I think they should have a they should have a commentary for the commentary where you hear all the cool stuff. <laughs> I, I pitched I pitched that, and I've pitched I pitched a bunch of commentaries when I was at um, when I first started. I wanted to get a bunch of the teachers at Berkeley in the film composing department to record commentaries for old movies because they kept they kept getting people to do these commentaries for old movies who were not entirely connected to the movie because it's so hard to find someone who hadn't you know. Like they're lucky Vincent Sherman lived to be 99 because otherwise who's going to record the commentaries for that? But I, I, yeah, I pitched some stuff like that. I pitched one where I wanted to get PAs from movies to come and give commentary. But that, that one would have got that one, that one <laughs> that would have passed legal. That would have been violent <laughs> and hate. No, I've offered to do commentaries of myself commenting on the commentaries that I edited. <laughs> See, but no, you and Rob, man, no, you no, guys have a connection. I'm no, just saying, no, no one would be interested in that past the idea that oh, that's a funny idea, and then no one's going to listen to me talk for an hour and a half about how much I hated cutting this hour and a half, <laughs> or what cool, like no one's going to sift through the hour and a half so that in the last ten minutes I'm like, oh, by the way, I would this- try pitching an hour and a half of just the mouth noises. <laughs> <laughs> I. I had one. I, I don't know what I did with it. I had one. Vincent Sherman's stomach made this really odd noise, and um, I, I kept it for a long time because I'm like, oh, this this is kind of like I've never heard anything like this, and I lost it somewhere along the way. You know, on the music side, uh, Jack Douglas, the famous producer who uh, has done Aerosmith, most of the big Aerosmith records, right. and also John Lennon, John Lennon's last record. Yeah, he told me a story about he was recording. Yoko, and there was he and John in the studio, and they had just come back from a sushi dinner, and she apparently sang very, very quietly, so much so that her stomach noises were much louder than her voice, and it was so funny that they couldn't laugh in front of her, so they get down behind the console and just broke up, so she wouldn't see them. Well, they can I can I name places on here? I don't want to. Yeah. Okay. There's a there's a place that our company records a lot of um, commentaries at called Margarita Mix. Oh yeah. And they seem to record a lot of them on Fridays. <laughs> and on Fridays, I believe they serve margaritas at Margarita Mix. So I've done so many commentaries where you're just you're listening, and about 45 minutes in, you hear the tinkle, tinkle, tinkle yeah. of, of ice in a glass, and it's like, what is that? Oh, that's they recorded this at Margarita Mix. I don't know. And that was the greatest the, movie, but that guy best, was such a dick. Uh. Best commentary I ever worked on was Memoirs of a Geisha, the, uh, the movie. Um, when was that? It was probably about 11 years, 12 years ago. Anyhow, um, the uh, commentary, the producer was brilliant. The, she brought in uh, some wine and sushi, and you had the 
production designer there. You had the costume designer and you had the editor and they were all eating sushi and drinking wine and man, it was a great commentary. But they didn't – you didn't hide any of the food stuff. You didn't hide any of the wine stuff, you know, the noises and stuff like that. Yeah. She's like – she says, no, keep that all in there. We want it to feel really weird, yeah. uh, real. You know, and you got two Academy Award um, – uh, recipients out of that group, and it was really it was cool. So sometimes adding a little life to these things, no, always, makes it really good. always, yeah. always adding life <laughs> is. There's nothing worse than uh, you, sometimes you can tell that it's a director and it's he's obligated to do it, and it's just him, and he's sitting there watching a movie that he's seen two hundred times in the last month that he has just poured his entire life into, and he's just. You know, like the, there'll be huge chunks where he's not talking because what is he going to say? <laughs> like he has, he's not. There's nothing more to say. Uh, the best, the best ones are where it's multiple people yeah. and it's loose. At least one of those people has to be loose. <laughs> well, hey, listen, um, I want to, I want to move forward because Sean is more than just a commentary editor. Isn't that hilarious? It's so funny because we talk about how much you edit and how much you don't like editing commentaries now, and we spent most of his time talking about commentaries. That's <laughs> ah, so funny. Anyhow, Sean is recently, um, like I said, he was um, featured on In It Cold News as a sound designer. He's a great sound designer, mainly because I think of your musical training. He went to uh, Berkeley School of Music and has a really good ear and, and knows how to sound design stuff, and he's worked with... Um, some low-budget filmmakers, and uh, and slowly is building his clientele, right? As they're getting bigger. I don't have bigger. clients. I have friends. <laughs> wow. That's good, though. I, That's better. I, I'm, yeah, I, I, I can see where we're going with this, and I'm going to just start you right there. That I think of the people that I work with as friends first, because if I didn't, then, yeah, it'd be like, if you think of them as clients it makes it a little harder to do what I think we're going to argue about, which is lower budget stuff. Oh, I'm not gonna, wait, wait, do you get your, paid in pizza? Yeah. <laughs> what's your instrument? I play drums. That's oh, why see, I was a terrible composer. Yes, but it's even better, though, for, for editing. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. You, I have a decent I, rhythm. I always thought that the best video editors were musicians as well because they could cut on a beat. Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah, well, they understood what a beat was. That's the main thing, man. Is it's, it's nothing worse than working on something you're mixing and the editor drops two counts in the yeah. middle of a, yeah, of a yeah, song. Yeah. You're like, this, this does not work. Yeah. Oh, you know, yeah. it's this even worse does on, not work. On music videos or concert videos where they're cutting and you go, oh, that just doesn't make any sense. <clears throat> yeah, dude, you know? I cleaned up so many poorly edited pieces of music uh, for the editor yeah. that. My old employer. Yeah, <laughs> but um, no, we're not going to we're not going to argue because uh, we've had this argument a few times. We we, we are going to talk about working. Um, we're just going to have to have you come back, brother, because there's there's so much more. I feel we're going to move into this next topic, but there's so much more to your career than just just. What we're no, about that's to all talk audio about. commentaries. That's all. That's all that matters. <laughs> but um, but uh, Sean's worked. One thing I wanted to talk about and. Uh, and I, I had a horrible, horrible experience, and that has to do with working for free. Okay, you know, on this podcast, we've preached, you know, working for free. We we're not, um, we're not pro free here. We're we're pro getting paid. Getting, oh crap! Get, getting paid. <laughs> <laughs> this is this an intervention? Can? Is this an intervention? No, no. The the reason why is I, I I worked on a project and and I did a lot of work for free, and they wanted to 
add some more to the project. And I gave a proper budget for what that additional would be. And it was a proper cheap budget. It wasn't even a proper real budget. It was just, okay, this is this is a, a good deal budget, but this is a budget. Floored them. They had no clue as to what it was going to cost them. And it, it, it got me thinking, one of the things about working for free, one of the reasons why it's – it's really not a good idea, um, aside from you're not making any money. But it's hard. It's hard for people on the other side to affix a value to what you're doing if you're not charging them. So they don't know expectations one way or the other. Not everybody, but in my case, especially for newbies, if you don't show them what what the value is, they, they're, they're going to get blown away next time where you have to do it and they have to do it for real. You know? And it's, it's just when, you don't, when someone doesn't value something, it's really easy to like, oh, I need to change that or I need to change that shot or I need to do this. And they don't realize any of those changes is a hard cost. It's, there's some hard element that's just some cost behind it. You know, I feel like if you go into a project and you at least can charge them something, they have a baseline value to, to start from. So they know, okay, this is cheap. This is a friend deal, but it's going to be 200 bucks. Okay. So then at least in their brain, they can, you know, go exponentially from there, um, where it might land. But, it's they, just, did, but they don't. Yeah, uh, sometimes they do. Sometimes and, and, they do, but and, I don't know that that I don't know that that follows. You know, I learned this from um, an entrepreneur friend of mine. Uh, unfortunately, not early enough in my life, but uh, what he would always do, and, and there was one project in particular where one of the partners coming in on their project on on, on their company that was just a startup was bringing all the software design and all the programming and everything. So we said, okay, if you were going to charge me for this, how much would it cost? And he went to everybody and figured out, you know, real world, what is this going to cost? And that helped value the company. But And that kind of works the same way for us. If, if as a producer, uh, the producer was smart, they would say, okay, you know, you're doing me a, a solid here, but... If I were to pay you, what would this cost? Or the other way around, you to say to somebody, "Okay, I'm giving you this for two hundred dollars, but you know, it would really cost two thousand dollars." Right. I just so, think. If but you- I mean, it's tough, and we all and none of us ever do that. That's yeah, it's a great salesman trick, and I, yeah. I, I don't remember if you do this with your online products, but you see this a lot with online marketing. Is they'll tell you, you know, you're getting this and this. If you were to do this on your own, it would cost you. $1,000 for this, another $1,000 yeah. for this. They add it all up, and then it's like, but you're getting this $5,000 value for just $37 today, and yeah. I'll throw in these three bonuses, yeah. you know, that type of thing. You, you know, sort of I'm not even, do a version of that. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to talk money with people, especially if you're doing something for free and they don't have a budget. I'm you know just, what? I have to jump in because this is – I've made plenty of mistakes in my career, and this is one of the very, very, very few mistakes I haven't made. Ever since I first started – because I did so much more stuff for free than I ever should have. And that was a big mistake. But I would always tell them the value of what I was doing up front. In the same sentence as I was saying, I'm not going to charge you, but I need you to realize that on the open market, this would cost X dollars. You don't lose any face with anyone. You don't lose any respect. You don't lose anything. All you do is you set an expectation that they know 
this amount of work is worth this much money, even if this knucklehead Rob's going to do it for me for free, at least I've set the expectation. And I've had it come back years later where people will remember, oh, you said that thing was a $3,000 thing and you did it for $300. Well, now we have the $3,000. And I'm sure I learned it from watching other people do it, but it's something that even as an extreme beginner, I mean, I remember doing it when I was like 18. Right. As an extreme beginner, you set the expectation, and the higher you set that number, the more of a deal it feels like you're giving them anyway. You know, if you say, you know, normally I would try to get three grand for this, and I actually got someone else to pay me five grand for it. I'm doing it for you for nothing, but understand this is the value you're getting. Number one, they're going to value the work you do a lot more. They're going to take you a lot more seriously. It sounds like you know what you're talking about, which also helps. And there's just absolutely no downside. Why would anyone ever think less of you for saying that? Yeah. But, you know, there's another, another part to this that you were, you were actually telling us before. Which is? Well, not what the initial work was, but the work afterwards. The, the, what they came back to you and wanted some other things. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. They, they came back and they wanted to, to, because they had no sense of value of what it was, like I, I said, but, they, but I, I, they came back and wanted to do changes, wanted to do more. Yeah. I, I feel and, like when you say that they don't have a sense of value, that that's, that in itself is kind of a combative statement that suggests, like, in my experience, I, I do a lot of stuff for free. I do a lot of stuff for a lot less money than it would cost people to do it. But like I, like I was saying earlier, as sort of a joke, like most of the people that I work with, right. they're either people that I have known for a long time or they're people that I have been referred to by people that I know for a long time, people who don't want to burn my bridge. Right. And I, you know, I know they know the value of what I'm doing. They just don't have it. And so if they get to a point where it's like, okay, we need – you know, I've done four movies now with Mickey Keating. We have not done one single line of ADR because I've been able to because he hires really good recordists, which is super important filmmakers, and because I know how to use Isotope pretty good because that's all I do all day long at trailer parks. <coughs> so we, you know, it, but if I was to tell him, "Hey, we need a thousand dollars to rent an ADR studio." It, he, he doesn't. If he doesn't have that, he doesn't have that. Like, he, he, no, I, you're saying they're no, no. you're saying they're floored, and I get that. But like, no, no. I you look that in, in and of itself. I get it. You, you and you have the, your friends, and you have an established, you know, rapport with them. I'm working with a client. First project I'm doing with them. They're newbies to production. Uh, my connection is some friends that are there. I'm rolling a freebie. And then they want to make changes off the freebie, and you're like, okay, it's totally doable, but now these there's some hard costs because in their mind, they had no look, they had no clue what I, you know, I can do the job of four guys on set. I mean, I've I've done it, and and they have no clue that you need those four guys. They have no idea that that the DP is not the same as the director, is not the same as the first assistant cameraman, you know, is not the same as the, as the gaffer. I mean, they don't know any of those, you know. But I feel like you're arguing two separate points. That no, they no. don't know those things. They it's not that they don't know those things because you did the work for free. They don't know those things because they don't know those things. They're right. That's, that's exactly. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. So there's nothing wrong with doing it for no, no, free. No. And 
telling them no, what there's it would nothing, cost. I, I'm not anti-free. Right. I'm just saying you just have to educate. That's my, my whole point on this is, look, everybody has to do a certain amount of freebies. Everybody does because that's just the way it worked in this. this. Okay, let's go around the room. Okay. <laughs> freebies. A, yes, I've got a great story that I've been dying to tell here. At the beginning of my career... Uh, I was asked to work sound design on a really awesome Japanese anime film, and I spent six months on it. Um, they said, oh, well, it's a really low budget. We can't hire, you know, killer sound designer XYZ to be able to do it because there's not enough, you know, there's not enough budget. So I spent six months of my life working on a film in which I got paid $2,500 thinking and assuming that this, of course, meant, since I did such a fantastic job on the film, that I would get the next film with them. Mm, yeah. So, Bobby, you know the end of this story already, <laughs> without my even having telling you, told you. What happened on the next film that they got? Well, you weren't on it, I bet, right? I was not on it, and why not? Because they va- they didn't value what you did, right? And the hot sound designer that they wanted, they had the budget for him yeah. for the next movie, and so he was the one that got the gig instead. Yeah. And that was a very, very, very valuable lesson for me. Okay, Rob. Well, I've said on the podcast numerous times: if you do too much stuff for free and you don't couch it right, then people assume you're just the guy who does stuff for free, and yes, you're only going to get the free gigs. But what's your good story? About well, doing something for free. I think I've told the story before. I mean, I the first few years I was with Stevie Wonder, I was working for free because I thought it was a massive opportunity and it was worth it. And and it was and it was. But that's probably my first and biggest uh, story of that. I've done plenty of gigs to sort of learn the craft for free. When I started doing dialogue editing, I did the first for free. When I started scoring movie trailers and, and TV commercials and TV shows and stuff... The first few are always free, but I always set an expectation of what this would cost if I was charging. And, you know, I'd say every time I've moved into a different part of the industry, I've done a little bit for free and then tried to move past it as, as quickly as possible. And I'm proud to say I just turned down doing a film for free. Uh, and it felt. <laughs> do, do you have a horror story? Yes. I once worked on a nightmare album for a year and a half for free. <sighs> Oof. No for, an artist, for an artist who was about a tenth as talented as they thought they were. Oh, oh, God. All right. And had convinced me they were. So, yeah, I regretted it. I agreed to do it, so I saw it through, but it was a horrible experience. All right, Brandon, yep. your next I got one. horror story. From early on in my career, this seems to be when these happen, um, I did a student film for a friend, or I, I did the mixing. It was just supposed to be mixing. It was for a friend of a friend, a 20-minute student film. It was like, all right, we just need you to do the mix. Great. Oh, but uh, we also need some dialogue editing. All right, I got in there. There's so much camera noise and hum behind mm. there, so much background noise. I spent a ton of time just cleaning up all that and editing all the dialogue. And then it's like, oh, and, you know, we need you to mix, you know, there, there's some fillers, you know, some gaps between music. Can you compose some, you know, stuff to bridge those gaps and <laughs> fix some music edits? And, oh, 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 you sound design? Oh, can you do some sound design as well? We got a monster here and we there's this comet that flies by and needs a sound all right so i'm doing all this stuff and it just so the lesson learned is it's the free projects or the favors that end up being way more work yeah. than you ever expected them to. always be. every single time okay so I, I have a different experience i have not had one bad like horror story free it's coming <laughs> then no i i 
I only the day do, will come. Believe I only, me. I only do free. I do free th- when I do something for free. It's for someone that I've already established a relationship. It'll be with. even harder than when it well, happens. I, I don't know. I my whole thing is if if they don't have money, they still need sound, and I'm not going to throw them to the wolves and have them just go to anybody. Like they're usually a friend of mine, and I will do the work for them. And it's to me, it's I, oh, I, your time is coming. Look, I'm I'm super lucky because I work at Trailer Park and I have a gig, so I can take as much free work or as as few free jobs as I feel like I have time to do. But I've been super lucky. The only times I've been burned have been times that people were paying me. All right, Mike. Other than this last one, well. I'm gonna I'm gonna break the mold a little bit, okay? Because I've never like I'm looking back and and I can't say that I've worked on anything even when I was starting off is completely free because I usually work a barter in there somewhere, okay? Like when I was first starting off, um, I would work <laughs> I would work. A barter system for like a plugin or something. Don't work for free. Even if it's you're starting off and they're asking you to mix the YouTube, have them throw forty bucks. Find a number that they can affix a value to it because that way you're not the free guy. You know, you're not the you're not. Now I've worked on actually I've worked with Sean on some pretty low budget stuff that was that was just horrible. That was the worst. My dog died and you still made me do it. I didn't still make you do it. Yeah, you did? I was like, my dog died. I don't really think I'm up to working on this. You're like, I can't get anybody else. I need you to do this. It was was, was a horrible situation. And it turned out to be bad. See? Only when people pay me do I get burned. It was really... But uh, I don't know. I'm I'm just not one... I value people... I don't like to hear other people pressing themselves too low because it takes everybody down. I, I disagree. You know? I disagree a, with that entirely. That's not. You I know? don't think. I, I think you're. There's two. There's two separate ways of pricing yourself. There's pricing yourself for someone who has a budget, and sometimes people will try to screw you. And then there's pricing yourself for projects as they are. That's like deep. a project has this much money, right? They I, can't. They're not going to get more money. No, I understand I that. Mean, but, they might sell but, something of no, theirs, but, but be, like, look okay. at the other side. There's okay. For instance, okay, you're doing a, a serial. You're doing a show, and great. Some of the shows are on a per per show budget that's hard fixed in because there's not going to be more, right? Um, I actually had a friend of mine who was working. On a show for Discovery Channel Family, which is a new, you know, a relatively new cable network, and they had a hard fixed cost of fifteen. I think it was fifteen thousand per episode Holy for that cow. for that show. That right? Makes the whole season for that. <laughs> but but and so they broke it down everything, and by the time I got to audio, it was ridiculously low, even cheaper than some of the stuff you worked on, and that's and, I, and I was and I was like. How can they do that? And the only reason why I know this is because he asked me if I wanted to mix it. He goes, "Hey, you want to do this?" And and he told me what the budget was, and I was, it was it was well, laughably small. See, that's and I'm the like, thing. that's the I'm, kind of thing I would say no to. Well, I did like, say no. yeah, right. But you but but you don't understand the reason why. You, later on, you find out what they put in production right off the top. They took a large percentage and just sacked that away per um, per episode. Is like. 
you know, pure profit on their side, not even paying themselves. You know, that's just like well, right. That's shady people, and you shouldn't want to work with them. I'm just saying. That's what I'm you saying. You don't want those clients. But if, but guess what? Somebody makes that show for the and, pittance. And, you know, and it probably was a great opportunity for them, and they're probably <laughs> sitting there thinking, "I got my name I, on a show on Discovery," yeah, and they probably put in way more time than it was worth. But and they, but there's they old, got screwed. And somewhere they're sitting around at a table no, with some friends, and they're having a conversation about know, when they were for, for practically. Hey guys, we need to replay this show. <laughs> Do the commentary of a person for every budget. There is someone out there who that is the right budget for them. Okay, let, let me tell you my story because it, it goes directly to, to your premise here. I work with the friend who was a great songwriter, former friend, I'm going to say, but we were really tight. So uh, he says, Okay, uh, we got to record these songs. Okay, let me find a studio. I find a studio, I make all sorts of deals, and this is on my word, I'm making deals. So we go in and we record, it's coming out good, and then he says, I really don't like this, Uh, let's do another version, Uh, let's do it reggae style. Okay, so we do it, I think I told this story before, so then we do it reggae and we finish that, and he says, you know what, this would be better as a country song. Okay, so we do it as country, and then we finish that, and he says, "Ah, you know, maybe it's more R&B, no, it's Calypso, let's do it, so next thing you know, we do five different versions, and of course we end up with the first one again, so by this time... This amount of time that I'm expecting, which is, you know, X amount of days becomes X amount of weeks. And I'm really burnt out and I'm really upset, but, it, you know, it's finished. So what really topped it off was I'm already burned way beyond what I expected. And then the guy moves out of town. Three, four weeks later, I get a, a DAT tape in the mail from the guy I'm looking at it and there's a note that says I need some tape copies can you make this can you go and get some and I'm thinking to myself wait you're in a big city why do I have to make tape copies and again former friend it was somebody that that I just felt burned me once twice thice and then did it again Uh, or tried to do it the last time which I didn't of course I sent it back to him and said no I'm sorry listen I, I mean that that's a horrific story, and all I'm saying is this: is you know, I think along with the, the what Rob was saying, you know, fix a value to your stuff. Of, you know, make sure people realize what you're doing for them. Sean, you work with some great friends, like you said, you're in a situation where you don't have to worry about it. But there's some real people out there that I, I'm just saying, well, right? But I, I I just don't like I don't like to say black and white. Like you don't work for free. No, some no, people need I'm, to work. Some no, people need to I'm work. I'm not for even free. saying don't work for free. I'm just saying you just have to make sure people if value you need what credits, you do. Credits, you, you have if to you, work for if free. You need to experience. Yeah. Yeah. You experience. need to be yeah. able to learn how to do it. But you can't expect. Okay, if you're mixing something for free or you're sound designing something for free, I don't think it's fair for the client then to come back and you know a expect the sound design to be Gary Rydstrom quality. Oh, obviously, you know. Uh, and if they want to change a bunch of stuff, it's like, well, then. Go somewhere else. You know, like, this is what I did. This yeah, is I mean, this is how much time I'm willing to invest in this thing for what it is that I'm getting out of it, which is the experience of working on it. Right? Something else for my reel. And, and you know what? This I would I would argue that getting sh- <coughs> sorry getting dumped on by a producer or a, a payer of your bills 
uh, getting dumped on by one of those people is part of the learning experience. Like mm-hmm. I, it, you, you kind of got to get pooped That's on once in a while. Part of the everyday experience. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. Or you can just you know have an umbrella and learn how to weave in and out of those showers. Um, but you know we're gonna have to wrap this up. This is a great conversation, Sean. Hey, you want to? Uh, oh wait, Rob, you want to say something? Well, I'm going to uh, change the topic if I may. Before we wrap this up, sure. to take my mind off of uh, how many gigs I've done for free, <laughs> I decided to look into some of our uh, proceeds as far as streaming and single sales and all of that stuff. And I actually have a few statistics to report. Oh, great. Tell us. Um, so, and I'm going to anonymize this data, and I'm also going to not be very specific about numbers. But sure. um, I'm going back to, this is, remember, the data is months old by the time we can see it. But I can basically look at the life cycle of a single that lived a few months ago. And this single got into the mid-30s on the pop charts. So on the BDS charts and the Billboard main pop chart, it got into the mid-30s. That's pretty good. Um, So it did pretty good. And He's choking on the numbers. I'm choking on the numbers. Well, I mean, and it's it's not mega bucks. I mean, there's, you know... Uh, we're talking a few thousand bucks here. We're not talking about megabucks. But um, the streaming is 5.5% of the revenue for the uh, song. And it didn't get you know millions of streams or anything. It got a few dozen thousand uh, streams, and it sold a few thousand copies. But the, the revenue that's actually going into the pocket... Five and a half percent was from the streams, and the rest is from single sales. And those single sales are primarily iTunes with a little bit of Amazon. How about publishing? Do you know about that? Uh, no, that's not reported here. Yeah. This is just the pure proceeds from, you know, if, if people go up with The Orchard or TuneCore or one of those kind of distributors, this is the side of it that they'd be reporting. The, uh, we can't do it this time, but... The next time, or uh, you know, at your convenience when you'd like to do this, there's a way to equate the number of radio airplay with the number of streams. You know what? And it's very interesting, actually, when you sit down and look at these numbers, and then you find out really what the value of a stream is and what the value of a radio airplay is. We're going to do that on our next podcast, because our next podcast, um, the guest that we're going to have is actually a Grammy-nominated songwriter who has a great story of how she got there. First song, first time a Grammy nomination. Mm. It's it's pretty incredible. Grammy? Emmy. I forgot one of those two. <laughs> it's kind of a big difference. Yeah. No, there is. But, but, well, one, it's for a theme song, so I'm like, I forgot which one it was. Oh, yeah. But anyhow... We'll, we'll find out. I'll find out on the next podcast. But uh, no, we'll, we're going to cover that because we're going to. It's going to go hardcore songwriter mode, and I know Martin's going to be back for that. Rob, uh, so obviously you're doing music for free, so uh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but we're, there's a reason we're focusing on licensing and live yeah. performances and a yeah. whole bunch of other uh, things besides pure music sales. Yeah. Well, hey, listen, um, we're going to wrap it up. But, Sean, it was great having you here. You're going to come back. We're going to talk some more about some of the stuff you're doing and some of your sound design and things like that. Because there's Sean's a quiet guy, but he has a, you know, he's a lot of multifaceted parts to you, Sean. No, there's just me. <laughs> 
<laughs> it was good talking about commentaries, though. That's like it's like going down memory lane. <laughs> yeah, thanks, th- thanks for inviting me to your podcast to talk about the one thing that I hated doing for years and years. Spent, but it was so interesting, though. I mean, it, is it? I, yes, I can't tell. No, it's fascinating. Well, when you talk about prep. I don't know what that means exactly because prep in the music world is something completely different. Yeah, so yeah. It, that's why I want to, you know, I, I want to hear the explanation of, of what that means. We'll bring you back, Sean. There's just a lot more, a lot, a lot, a lot of stories there. So uh, thank you for uh, for showing up, man. It was great. Thanks for having me. <laughs> All right. Well, before we go, um, really quick, uh, anybody working on anything they want to want to talk about? Um, Brandon, it's good to see you, bro. I'm back. Yeah. Temporarily in the audio world for a moment. Yeah. <laughs> Are you still doing that stuff with Diego? Are you still? Uh... No, we thought about launching a music library, but yeah. uh, we decided it wasn't the right time for for that right now. So. Well, I'm not working on anything uh, audio related right now. I'm taking a temporary vacation. Nice. Temporary wow. retirement for a little while and uh, working on some internet business stuff. You know what? That's not a bad thing, though, because, boy, when you come back to it, it's just going to be like, it's just going to be sweet. So. Yeah, I definitely experienced some burnout, so I'm sure you guys have all been there. So it's nice to oh, take God, a break yes. sometimes. <laughs> Plus, you'll be a multi billionaire from your internet startup. <laughs> That's and then right. You'll That's be able the to idea. Do it optionally. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Rob, are uh, you working on anything you want to talk about that you haven't already talked about? Well, I'm here in New York working on my future billion-dollar Internet startup, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but, but you shouldn't uh, laugh because he's, that's a distinct possibility. Well, I'm, More than I'm sure likely. So. Things are going well. But uh, I, got, I just came here from Austin where I was working with the missus, and I'm happy to say our Christmas single – which is called What Christmas Means to Me. It's a cover of the uh, the old Stevie Christmas song. Uh, has been accepted onto a bunch of Christmas playlists that are going to be making their way through satellite radio and terrestrial radio. So the miss is What Christmas Means to Me. You will hopefully hear it this year. It turned out really good. I mean, as a band, they've really grown, and they can actually cover a song and make it their own, and they made me proud on this one. It, it came together pretty easily That's compared great. to some stuff in the early days. So... Yeah, I mean, we learned early on, if we don't have a Christmas song out, then we're going to be completely out of the public's consciousness from basically now until after the holidays. So we whipped together this Christmas song, and it turned out well, and these radio stations and playlists are accepting it. So that's our latest good news. We're playing some little gigs here and there in the next couple weeks, but it's mostly about being ready for the holidays and seeing how this Christmas track does. Great. Nick, how about you? What are you you working on? What? What? I've uh, massively stripped down my studio. I've massively stripped down. I've, <laughs> I've massively stripped down my studio uh, to have sort of a satellite version of it in a smaller place. And what has been so fascinating about it is to see just how little stuff you need now to be able to really do the kind of stuff that you know, know I used to do that filled up an entire room. Uh-huh. Um, I'm in the middle of building a rack mount PC uh, that is going to be a sample server for doing orchestral work, uh, which is going to be pretty cool. Nice. Um, and so, you know, you connect that up with uh, gigabit Ethernet into your Mac running Cubase or Logic or whatever, and Bob's your uncle. You've got yourself sort of the best of both worlds. So nice. I may have that uh, close to done by the next podcast. You never know. Nice. Bobby, how about you? I have uh, three... Second edition books coming out. Uh, in other words, I've done the, this update on um, Music 4.1. Actually, it's a fourth edition. 
So it's going to be Music 4.1. Uh, the Music Producer's Handbook, second edition, finishing up. The Drum Recording Handbook, hmm. also finishing up. Um, a couple of other courses that I'm doing, online courses, that uh, should be out soon. And um, I just got out of the studio with uh, Snoo doing some tracks for the next album. And that was a huge amount of fun because we went back to a commercial studio which was just awesome, i got to say. As much as everybody likes working at home and in small studios, right. God, there's nothing like working in a big studio. Well, it's probably true. Yeah. Especially if it has a big room, big recording room. Big room, great <laughs> gear. Uh, a mic locker. How about that? <laughs> with real mics. I mean, you know, K84s, C12s, blah, 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 all that stuff. You know. Somebody setting all that stuff up for you so you can concentrate on the music. Even the best. That You know, that's the one thing. God, I didn't have to think at all so except about the music you know that's the thing it's like to be able to when you have a second a really good second who can anticipate um all that stuff like when you're just talking about micing up a drum and they're already setting up the stands because they know boom they're gonna you know it's gonna come it's just that small stuff like that not having to worry about the computer about Pro Tools. That's, mm-hmm. that's another, or routing. How about routing? When you want yeah. when you want to be able to route the mic and send it over here and multi this and that and boom. That's, and having a real analog console, it was, you know, it's just wonderful. That's awesome. Faders, faders. It's it was it was a reintroduction to faders. And wow, I loved it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, how about you, Mike? I'm going to work on a couple of free things. <laughs> no, uh, let's see. Uh, I got some things if you're available to work with. <laughs> um, I'm starting a couple projects um, that uh, I'll fill more in when it gets closer to being done. How about done. the Fox stuff? Is that coming back around for the next Yes, year? but we just found out it got pushed to spring. Well, so essentially, we'll be getting the edits before the end of the year, but. We'll be doing uh, springtime, so which is cool because had we kept the same schedule, we'd <laughs> we'd be like three weeks behind already. So um, you'd so be working bit, over the holiday, uh, yeah. Oh, believe me. and and I actually, funny enough, I had a vacation request in for next week because I'm taking time off next week that could not be approved until we found out what they were going to do, and we found out today what the schedule was, and so. I got the approvals and stuff, so it was that was uh, pins and needles because you're like, oh, please, please push, or at least just give me this one week, you know. The holidays are weird because for our business, um, sometimes everybody's trying to to finish all their projects at the end of the year, mm-hmm. and we get super, super busy. And I tend to take. Thanksgiving Is that off. for budgets? Because of, of budgetary reasons? No, they just want to. Producers just want to take extended holidays. Yeah, and they just, same as everybody else right. around Christmas and New Year's. So they just want to be done. And so I usually take Thanksgiving week that time. I usually take that off because then I usually stick around and and um, cover Christmas because I don't mind staying. You know, like like Sean has family in Chicago. But other people have family outside, and all my family's here. So I'm, you know. Um, I'm used to sticking around and stuff, but it's weird. They just it just gets crammed in the last couple of weeks, and people want stuff. And you see, you know, hey, can we push this up a week and push? It's it's yeah, it can get kind of busy and kind of hectic. So, which is a bummer because it's just less time to go shopping, right? Because it used because it used to be slow enough that we'd play video games. Oh yeah, the holidays. <laughs> That's one of the good things. 
You know, it's really kind of cool having someone that you've worked with for as long as we've worked together because we, we can talk about literally back- stuff that has nothing to do with any of the rest <laughs> of you. <laughs> we used to have an Xbox set up and we would have tournaments and play. Um, what was it that we Rainbow Six Ghost, Re- Ghost Recon Ghost Recon we played Ghost Recon in a big audio bay on a big TV with surround sound it was pretty awesome if you have any comments or questions you can reach us at audio at nowcastnetwork.com that's audio at nowcastnetwork.com um, like to thank everybody for listening like to thank Sean once again for being here and congratulate Delbert and thank you Delbert for engineering this podcast thanks Delbert Delbert Congratulations. <laughs> so from myself and all the guys, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Audio Nowcast, sponsored by API and West Wave Audio. The Audio Nowcast is hosted by Mike Rodriguez and uses Aphex's 230 Master Channel Voice Processor. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>